Good afternoon, folks. It's that time of the day again. Time for the Elephant in the Room on WJAS 1320 AM and Talk 99.1 FM. This is your host, Sam DeMarco, joined in studio today again by John Schneider, the best executive director RCAC has ever had. Don't anyone tell Mike Devaney that, but it's true. John Schneider is the very best. And our producer, a guy I couldn't be happier to have as our friend and somebody that helps make this show go, Dazzling Dandy Daryl Grandy. Daryl, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for uh, being here, Sam. Oh, listen. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. You're here. John's here. I'll tell you who's not here, no. but who is joining us by phone. And that's one of our favorite guests and a good friend of mine. And we're joined via telephone from the other side of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania with Guy Shiraki. Guy is a senior fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation. He's also a columnist for Broad and Liberty and Real Clear PA, where he focuses on the politics of the suburbs. His Twitter handle, I believe, is PA Suburbs Guy. Uh, he's also a frequent radio guest here on our show, as well as stations across the Commonwealth. Uh, Guy, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me back, Sam. And, and mostly for your listeners, what probably matters most is that my mother-in-law was born and raised in Braddock, uh, and and uh, their family had a bakery there for many generations, and uh, our oldest daughter is a graduate of Pitt. So I've done my sufficient uh, uh, kissing up to my friends in Pittsburgh. I, I, I'm validated by a mother-in-law from Braddock and, and the proud dad of a, of a Pitt Panther. So you've made your pilgrimages here, right? Across I, the turnpike. Many, many uh, pilgrimages there for, for family events and, and friends and for our, for our daughter. Uh, it is probably the part of the state other than Philadelphia that I've been to the most in my life. Uh, so happy to catch up again with you and talk about things uh, that we care about and that are important to all your listeners. Well, we're happy you can join us, Guy. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, and we'll talk about a, a number of topics today, but one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is right now in Harrisburg, you know, the governor has rolled out his budget, and currently the uh, House and Senate are conducting budget hearings. But as I follow you on social media, you're out there very vocal about the need for the governor to step up and provide funding, you know, for many of our kids. And uh, you want to explain to our listeners, you know, what's happening and what your positions are and why. Sure. Look, I, just to be clear, as you and I know from talking, uh, you know, privately, uh, my three children are grown. My, my children range in age from 22 to 30. Uh, they've graduated from college. So this, this is not about necessarily my home or my children, but it is about the Pennsylvania that my children are going to grow up in, the, the Pennsylvania where they're going to try to find work, where they're going to try and raise their families. So I care about it. I care about it because I've been involved in, in a pursuit of uh, educational choice for years. Why? Because I want parents to have uh, the ability to choose and have access to good schools because I want every child to find a school that works for them, where, where parents have input and where kids can succeed. What does that all boil down to as a practical matter? It's in everybody's interest, whether it's your child, uh, your grandchild, niece, nephew, your next door neighbor, or whether you're in Pittsburgh and we're talking about kids in Reading. It's in all our interest as citizens and taxpayers that every child be given the education they need to be productive, to take care of themselves, to achieve the American dream. Every time a child goes through the school system or goes through the education system and at some point drops out or is shuffled along but can't read or can't do math and can't keep their checkbook or can't find a job, we all suffer from that. So I think this is a moral issue. I think it's an academic issue. 
I think it's an economic issue. It's why I've been drawn to it. So I, I look at the idea of wanting there to be good schools of every kind and then let parents and their children find the one that works. I want good neighborhood public schools. I want good charter schools, good cyber schools, Catholic schools, Jewish schools, private schools. And for moms uh, that want to homeschool or dads or grandma that want to be able to homeschool, that they have the resources. Again, at the end of the day, I'm far less concerned about the name of the school. I'm concerned about whether there are options. Every parent needs access to options to find the school that works. And what work, might work for your children might not work for mine, but I think our job is to find what's best. And why I've been talking about this budget in particular is the governor's laid out his priorities. Uh, he speaks a great deal about education. And some of his rhetoric is not much different than my writing. Unfortunately, some of the reality of his budget and the dollars in the budget are a little different than his rhetoric. In the rhetoric, there are a lot of things that Governor Shapiro says that are similar to Guy Shiraki or even Sam DeMarco. Mm -hmm. But in reality, where the spending is and where the regulations are, they're not. So I'm trying to highlight that. And I'm, I'm saying, you know, in essence to the governor, when you say that you want every child of God to have the chance to succeed, which is his quote, you would like every child of God in Pennsylvania to have a chance to succeed, I say terrific. When he tells me that he wants to spend more money on public education, I'm skeptical but not opposed as long as we're working towards outcomes. But when he says we're going to cut funding for cyber schools, now I think that doesn't measure up to rhetoric. Because rhetoric says every child of God should be given a chance to succeed. In order to do that, public schools need more money, but cyber schools need a 50% cut. That doesn't make sense to me. And at the end of the day, I want both. I want all the schools in Pittsburgh and all the schools in Braddock to work. But for the, for the kids in Allegheny County or Westmoreland County or Washington County or wherever they might be that, that do better in cyber schools, for whatever reason, I want those schools to be vibrant as well. And I think at the end of the day, it's something we should all be for, and it should not be a partisan issue. So I write and speak, and you're kind enough to give me some time here, because at the end of the day, I believe it is a moral, academic, and economic imperative that we have uh, good schools, and every parent can find the school that works for their child. When that happens, we all win. Well, and, and for the folks, the listeners that are listening to me here as well today, I'm a big proponent of school choice. And, and that's because I'm focused on outcomes as well. And unfortunately, with the current system that we have in place from a public school perspective, students are denied the right, you know, to go to school, you know, with the money that their parents have contributed as tax dollars, okay, anywhere outside their zip code. And we have so many failing schools. I mean, right here in the city of Pittsburgh, you know, 18 of their schools are designated as in the, you know, bottom 10% of schools in the Commonwealth. The Philadelphia Public School District is notoriously terrible, okay? Uh, I mean, you look, yeah. the charter schools out there, they they can't accept all the students that the parents from the city schools are trying to get their kids into because they desperately want their children to get a good education. You know, so uh, when I see folks in Harrisburg, and it seems that too often this is the case, you know, politicians just talk about spending money. And, and, you know, having money to ensure that you have adequate resources is great, but how are you spending it and what are you spending it on? Because if it's not delivering positive outcomes, you know, we need to look at something else. And that's why his cut in cyber schools and wanting to cut in charters and things like that, his denying 
kids the ability to be able to uh, access you know lifeline scholarships, which was something that had been negotiated. That's very frustrating and disappointing to me. You know, I believe that no one cares more about their children than the parents, and I think the parents should have the ability to be able to dictate where their kids go to school because they have their children's uh, best interests in mind. Sure, and if they have options, then there's accountability, which is the other part that matters for us, whether it's your child, your grandchild, your niece, your nephew, or, or neighbors, is you want accountability. We spend, we spend billions of dollars in this state on education, as we should, mm-hmm. but there should be accountability. There should be results. There should be outcomes, and one of the ways there's accountability is if mom and dad or grandmom or whoever's raising as a guardian for a young child that that person has the ability to say, not that you dictate and get everything you want, because you don't get everything you want in life, but that if you believe the school is not accommodating and trying to find a way to educate your child, that you can go find a place that does. And again, we all benefit when you find a place, when the child finds a place that works for them, uh, as opposed to forcing them. Look, and a lot of people that work on school choice with me, a lot of people around the state, you know, you know, I've heard the phrase, so I repeat it, so I don't get credit for this. But, you know, Sam, to your point, most Pennsylvanians have school choice. Mm-hmm. Most Pennsylvanians do have school choice. What do I mean by that? You can move or you can pay tuition. You can move or you can pay tuition. That's how you as a parent, as a guardian, that's how you exercise school choice. If the schools in your community are bad, if you have the resources, you go to a community where the public schools are good. If you don't like the public school in your community or you believe in uh, a certain faith and you want your children in that faith or you think that the neighborhood, uh, you know, Catholic or Jewish school or, or Christian school is a better environment, you pay for it. So most Pennsylvanians have choice. But if you don't have the resources to pay your property taxes, to pay your local wage taxes and to also pay for tuition, you don't have that choice. If the local charter schools are all capped in enrollment and there's no room, you don't have that choice. So you and I are fighting for those kids and those parents because most Pennsylvanians do have choice. You move or you pay tuition. For the parents that can't do that, we're fighting for them. And we want them to find and have access to a school that works. And to me, that's something that, you know, whether you're standing in line at Sheets in Western Pennsylvania, or you're standing at Wawa, or you're standing at, you know, Stop and Go, or wherever you're standing and talking to folks, that's something I think most of us agree. We want kids to get in a school that works for them. And most Pennsylvanians, most people with common sense, we're less fixated on the name, or is it a public school or a charter school? Here's what I care about. Is the child thriving? And, it, and will the child make it to graduation? And when she graduates, can she read and write? Can she put together sentences? Can she problem solve? Can she do math? Can she keep a checkbook? If she wants to start a business, does she understand the basics? Can she work in a group? Those are the things I want to know. I'm less concerned about what the name is on her diploma, whether it's a religious school or a cyber school or a charter school or a public school. And look, most children, even in a school choice, even in Florida that has the most open school choice, parents are in charge plan. Most kids wake up every day and go to their neighborhood public school. So this isn't about whether public schools are good or bad or public schools should go away. Even in Florida, which has more school choice than any state in the nation, most children wake up and go to their neighborhood public school. The difference is they're there by choice 
because mom or dad or whoever's raising them made that decision. And the local district is accountable because they know that mom or dad could remove the child and send them somewhere else. Everybody succeeds in that environment. When a child is forced to go to a school, and as you pointed out, forced to go to a school that's running poorly, that's failing the kids, nobody benefits from that. Nobody. And why would we take especially the poorest kids who already have an extra step to reaching their, their potential, an extra step to reaching the American dream? Why would you take those children and force them to go to the worst schools? Again, to me, academically, economically, morally, that makes no sense. And that's why I speak out. Well, I mean, you know, when you, you talk about this, right, and you say by forcing these kids to go to these schools that are broken, you know, no one benefits. Well, you, someone does benefit, and that's the teachers' unions. Those are the people that are invested in maintaining the status quo. You know, right now here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you know, Commonwealth Court had ruled that the funding formula that was used to fund our public schools was broken and that it needed to be um, a, a new formula had to be provided. And I know that the legislature, they're going back and forth. Folks are talking about that now. <clears throat> but, you know, at the end of the day here, uh, I, you know, when I talk about, and, and I'm simplistic guy, you know, I talk about I just want positive outcomes. Your point about having children that are in these schools that are thriving is, is, is a great one. That's a positive outcome, okay? But I believe that the money should follow the student. You know, the schools that deliver quality education and can provide and, you know, and not only teach and educate the students and provide them an environment in which they thrive will do very well. You know, schools that do not will be forced to take and change to compete. I just think that that's the, uh, you know, the best way to go. And I'm just disappointed that here we are, you know, 2024, and we're still talking about this. And, you know, every year, I believe the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania graduates about 125,000 seniors. Uh, And we're taking and putting kids out, you know, of school here, many of which are still challenged from a reading and math perspective. And and we're not, we're, we're, they are not getting the benefit of what the taxpayers of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania are paying for. You know, they're not leaving with the education that that money was spent to provide. And that's extremely frustrating for me. Well, right. You hit the nail on the head. It's frustrating for you as a taxpayer. It's it's frustrating for anyone with compassion, right? Um, Because again, particularly we're talking about in many cases, children whose parents don't have the resources to do the things you, you would do in a rescue mission. They, they, they can't leave Pittsburgh and go to the North Hills. They can't afford the Catholic school tuition. And why can't they afford Catholic school tuition? It's not simply that they're working class families. It's that they've already paid their property taxes. They've already paid their wage taxes. They already pay other taxes. It's that having paid three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand $10,000 a year in taxes, they don't have the extra $4,000 to send their kid to to send their child to the local Catholic school, for example. Mm-hmm. Whereas, as you said, if, if, if they were given their $10,000 back or a portion of it, they would go to another school. And, and again, it's not simply, you know, let me sort of take on this other issue that, well, you know, some of these kids come from poor backgrounds or some of these kids are, are low income or some of these kids are in single families, uh, single parent families, and they have all these other challenges. You're right. Some of these kids do. Not everybody lives in in a perfect world. I understand that. But as we sit here today, there are private schools, there are Catholic schools, there are charter schools that sit in the shadows of public schools that don't work. 
And I don't want to pit school against school A against school B. I'm just saying that there are schools, there are Catholic schools in Pittsburgh, in Erie, in Reading, in Philadelphia, where 100% of the children live in poverty, where 100% of the children are entitled to free lunches, where the majority of the children have only one parent at home. And those schools find a way to make it work so that the children learn. So this is not about simply saying, well, yeah, but some of these kids, you know, what I call it sort of the, the, you know, the bigotry of low expectations. Well, these, these kids are poor or these kids are in a single parent home. There's only so much you can do. I disagree because there are men and women who get up and are teachers and counselors and principals at charter schools in downtown Pittsburgh that I have visited, you know, Urban Pathways mm-hmm. and others that, that are bringing in children from single parent homes, from low income homes. There are Catholic schools where 60, 70, 80, 90% of the students are not Catholic. They are from the community. They're there with aid and they have still empty seats and they don't have empty seats because no one wants to be there. They have empty seats because there are, pa- there are families in the community that, as I said, after they've paid all their taxes, they don't have the four or $5,000 for the tuition. If they were given their money back, as you said, if they, the money followed the child, if mom or dad or grandma, whoever's raising that child could say, instead of sending it to, you know, ABC public school, how about the school across the street? We'd like to send them there. We would all benefit. So I agree with you. I share your frustration. It's why I speak out. It's why I write, because, you know, my wife and I were blessed. We were able to provide for our children. We never had to face that gut-wrenching choice. We were blessed. So I try to speak out for the other kids, for the children that can't, and to speak to what you're saying. The more we have choice, the more we have competition, the more we have accountability, the state benefits. Well, as you said, 125,000 children graduate or are given diplomas or are you know, kicked out. Their, their tenure in public education ends. Mm-hmm. Okay. Every one of them that can't read or can't do math or can't fill out a job application or can't find meaningful work, it's a problem. It's a problem. And so, however, we're going to deal with that problem by continuing education, heaven forbid, the criminal justice system, or having to offer various types of welfare, we've put that person in a deficit. We've put that person behind. We have failed that person. Now, look, yes, in some cases, the child didn't pull her weight or his weight. I understand that. But for the children who wanted to but just weren't served properly, we all lose out. And what I want to do is close that gap so that less and less uh, of them are left behind. Again, economically, academically, morally, these children deserve a chance to succeed. And when they succeed, we all benefit. Well said. I mean, it's, but how do we get there? You know, that's the challenge, you know, and, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, winning hearts and minds, and that's frequently referred to, you know, in the military as they try to take and uh, rebuild a country, you hear it when we talk about it in politics. You know, how do we bring folks who may believe in something else over to our side? <clears throat> you know, but how do we get people to, I guess, convert these feelings? Because, you know, polls overwhelmingly show folks in favor of, uh, you know, school choice, you know, in whatever form or fashion it takes to uh, be able to make it happen via their elected representatives in Harrisburg. Yeah, look, uh, 
you're right. I mean, how do we turn these good feelings into action? Um, well, the good news, again, you have a governor that's saying the right thing. So we need to, you know, need to take advantage of that and build. No matter where you and I were having this conversation, live or by phone, no matter where we were sitting in Pennsylvania, no matter which one of the 500 school districts we were sitting in, the reality is this. About 80% of the people in any school district, about 80% of the people in any community don't have children in schools. Their children are older or they're single or whatever the case. Mm -hmm. So we have to find a way to connect with them the way you and I are talking about it now. I mean, it, this, this really rests in the hands, not just of parents. First of all, parents need to be engaged and not settle for mediocre or horrible. And I'll come back to what horrible really means. First, it begins with parents. But the reality is 80% of the people, I mean, wherever you are, I mean, pick, pick your neighborhood, you know, from Squirrel Hill to Braddock to, to uh, Monaca. I mean, 80% of the people don't, don't have a child in the school. Those are the people that have to get engaged because it's their dollars being spent. When the politicians in Harrisburg say, we're going to spend an extra billion dollars, we're going to spend an extra $2 billion, you know, that money doesn't come from heaven. That money doesn't come from a tree. It comes from everybody listening, paying a wage tax, paying property taxes, paying a sales tax. And if they have a business, paying a business, various business taxes, that's where the money comes from. The money comes from when we go to the gas station and pay a gas tax. So we should be demanding what you said before, Sam, which is accountability, which is return on investment. I gave you this money. What did you do with it? I gave you this money and it's not working. So how we go from ideas to reality is mom and dad have to speak up and demand better. But secondly, the rest of us have to step up and speak out and demand accountability. Let me come back to the point. What what does accountability mean? What What's the problem? You talked about it earlier, whether it's whether it's you know Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, wherever wherever I'm on the radio, there's there's a community, there there are kids that we're losing, and there are communities that are falling behind. But let's talk about it. What does it mean? There are schools, as as we know, public schools take standardized tests. The school districts, the schools get rated, top to bottom. In the bottom percentage of schools, wherever you want to draw the line, the bottom five percent, the bottom ten percent, the bottom twenty percent. There are schools where the proficiency rate is single digits. What does all that gobbledygook mean? It means that when you test eighth graders in math, that sometimes less than 10% of them can do math of an eighth grader. Not by my standards, not by Sam DeMarco's standards, mm -hmm. not by the Republican Party standards, but by the Pennsylvania Department of Education. They say that there are certain things that as an eighth grader, you ought to be able to do successfully in math. There are public schools in Pittsburgh there are public schools across the state where sometimes maybe 9% of the students can do the math of that grade. You're not getting return on your investment as a taxpayer. And again, I don't want to get into the blame game. I, okay, we all, There's a lot of disagreement over why that's the case. There's some disagreement on how to fix it. What I know is it's not working. And for those parents, they ought to leave. But Sam, it's worse than that. Okay, It's worse than that. Because there are schools in Pennsylvania where the, the rate of children in eighth grade or fourth grade or 11th grade, the grades where they get tested, where it's not single digits. Sam, there are schools in Pennsylvania where the proficiency rate is zero. Yeah. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not trying to prove a point. I mean literally zero. There are schools where they spend upwards of $20,000 or more 
a child. And there is not one 11th grader that can read at an 11th grade level. Zero. What person listening to this show, whether you're 20 years old or 90 years old, whether you have kids in school or, or, or siblings in school, what person listening to this show could ever look a parent in the eye and say, I'm sorry, that's a shame. But tomorrow, but on Monday, when you wake up, you've got to send your 11th grader to that school so she can go to English class. And you'd look and say, but literally, literally, not one child in the 11th grade reads at an 11th grade level. It is unconscionable that we would ever force a child to go there. How do we win over? We win over by parents speaking up, standing and saying, I can't take it anymore. But it's those of us listening. We have a civic duty. I'd say we have a moral duty to say no child in Pennsylvania should wake up on Monday morning and be forced to go to the school just because where they live, where literally no one can read at grade level. That is an economic act. It is a moral call to action. That's why I speak out. And I hope that people listening will take the time to engage with their legislators and demand that we take care of these kids, that we give parents choice so that no child is ever forced to go to a school like that. And, and our listeners, I mean, as you said earlier, Guy, 80% of them don't have kids you know, in school today. Okay. But these are the folks that we're talking directly to that need to get involved, you know, for the children in the future. You know, don't, don't allow the kids of tomorrow to fail as many, so many of the kids today are by failing to step up and demand accountability and to have these schools fixed. Guy, we're going to have to take a break here to pay the bills, but we'll be right back. Folks, we'll be right back on the elephant in the room on WJAS 1320 AM and 99.1 FM talk. Folks, welcome back to The Elephant in the Room on WJAS 1320 AM, 99.1 FM Talk. We're joined today on the phone here. We were talking in the first segment. He's back for the second segment by Guy Shiraki. Guy's a senior fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation and a columnist for Broad Liberty and Real Clear PA. And uh, we were just talking in the first segment about education, you know, and, uh, you know, the budget that the governor has proposed, the budget hearings that are taking place in Harrisburg, and what we feel is owed from a moral perspective, you know, to the children that we have in school today, whether you have children in school today or, or whether they were in the past or whether you believe or whether you're younger and you're looking to start a family. And the point is that we owe these kids an education and we owe the taxpayers a positive return you know, on their investment. So, Guy, I want to switch things up here. We were talking about education in the first segment. I want to talk about a couple things here uh, in the second segment more related to you know, how do we get folks in place, meaning elected, that will take and take action on some of these things that we believe are incredibly important. And, and that, you know, that boils down to here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in 2024 is how do we get conservatives, you know, to use mail-in ballots. And, you know, I ask not because I believe that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. I, you know, I don't, but they're the law of the land right now. And what's happening is, as we saw in the 2022 midterms, you know, when the, Oz Fetterman debate was held, and folks realized that Fetterman was not able to um, converse, you know, at that time as he was recovering from a stroke. Uh, he was already up by 550,000 votes over Dr. Oz because of the mail in ballots that had been returned. And, you know, we've done a lot of work. I've done a lot of work. I know many of us have done a tremendous amount of work over the last four years trying to encourage and grow the use of these ballots so that Republicans or conservatives can be competitive on election day. 
but we still have the former president uh, just last week. He was up in Michigan railing against the use of mail-in ballots. And as many of us try to raise money from donors to be able to fund a robust mail-in ballot operation here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, uh, some of our donors are just asking, you know, why bother? I mean, what do you think, you know, we need to do? What do you, how do you, you know, what would your be your recommendations? I'm trying to learn from a pro here. Yeah. So look, I, I most of your listeners are probably aware that two weeks ago there were special elections. There were a lot of national attention about the election up in Long Island in Queens because George, George Santos uh, was expelled from the House and they had a special election to fill that congressional seat. Um, there was also a special election in Bucks County in eastern Pennsylvania over uh, north of Philadelphia. What did we know about Election Day? We knew two things. One, we knew the weekend before. 60% of the votes that would be cast for the Democrats were already banked. The second thing we learned is that it snowed. And now, again, I know we're a little wimpier when it comes to snow in the east than we are out in southwestern Pennsylvania. But we got a real snowstorm here. We got, you know, six, eight inches of snow that really didn't stop until four or five o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, Sam, that's your commercial for mail-in ballots. There's your commercial. The Democrats, we, when all the ballots were counted, the Democrat in Long Island and the Democrat in Bucks County in special elections, about 60 percent of their votes had been cast before Election Day. And second, it snowed. So guess who didn't go to the polls in the numbers they needed to? Republicans. Exactly. Because we were going to chase them. Again, I, as you and I have discussed before on the air and off the air, this is a 100-yard dash, and we keep letting them start at the 60 or 70-yard line, and then, and then they fire the gun, and we try to catch them. And every once in a while we can, most times we can't. So, I mean, there was your commercial. The Democrats had done their job. Their candidates had banked their votes. They didn't care if it rained or snowed. They didn't care if they ran out of paper ballots. They didn't care if the polling place lost power. They didn't care if anything happened that day. If there was a traffic accident, if their kids were sick, they had to go visit their mom. Their votes were banked. Republicans were counting on Election Day. It snowed. In both elections, we lost. We can debate forever whether the Republicans would have lost or not. That's fine. But what I can tell you is a strategy that says we're going to let the other team start 60 or 70 yards ahead of us in a 100-yard dash and then try and catch them is foolhardy. Uh, so we need to engage in it. And last, uh, you know, last, uh, I'd be remiss if I don't use the example I use all the time, particularly when I talk with folks in the other side of the state. Uh, so bear with me, and I apologize to all my Steelers fans, friends. I actually <laughs> do own a terrible, I, I do own a terrible towel from back in the day. Well, that um, that's the only reason you're allow you on the show. Look, and every time the Steelers played the Cowboys, I cheered especially hard for the Steelers. <laughs> but anyway, um, but but look, here's here's the way I look at it: the Democrats are doing the tush push, and Republicans are the rest of the league yelling at the Eagles, saying it's illegal. We're the guys saying this is illegal. It's unfair. It ought to be banned. It's a problem. I don't like it. Okay, that's fine. But until the NFL bans it, Jalen Hurts and the Eagles are going to keep doing it. Same thing here. We can keep complaining that mail-in is unfair. We don't like it. It's your civic duty to show up. Drop by. Again, don't misunderstand me. We should want fair elections. We should demand fair elections. We should demand transparency. I like the idea of waking up in the morning and going to the polls. I get all of that. But it's the rule. 
And the Democrats are mastering the rule. They did it in 20. They got better at it in 21. They got better at it in 22. They got better at it in 23. And now with four years experience, they're going to come into the 2024 election. We need to stop complaining about it and do it. We need to stop complaining about it and do it. And we had the election two weeks ago to explain why. Why well, sp- give them a head start? And what do we do if it snows, rains, or hails on election day? I don't want to lose the presidency. I don't want to lose control of the Senate because it snows on election day. Well, and you know, I've been beating this drum for quite a while. And, you know, I spoke last uh, Saturday at the Franklin Park Republican Committee dinner. And I, you know, brought those examples up that, you know, in Bucks County, between lower Bucks and upper Bucks, they got four to nine inches on election day. You know, in New York, in the, the, uh, congressional third district there. Uh, they had a snowstorm that just came through there in the whole tri-state area, you know, there during the morning commute, you know, and studies have shown for every inch of snow, it depresses turnout by 1%. For every inch of rain, it depresses turnout by half a percent. And then all the f- factors that life gets in the way, you know, some people get sick, their car breaks down, they have to work, their kids are sick, you know, any myriad of excuses. And trust me, you know, serving on the board of elections, I've heard them all from people at the last minute, you know, who didn't request a mail-in ballot, and then something's come up, they're not going to be available to go on election day and looking for some sort of way to have their voice heard. And, you know, again, we can take and prevent all of that just by taking and voting by mail. And, uh, you know, I vote by mail personally, one, because I wanted to understand how it worked so that I was able to explain it to Republicans and members of my committee. And the second reason being, now it frees me up on election day, you know, to go and work at the polls or whatever it is that I need to do. So uh, your point, you in Pennsylvania, we have up to 50 days of early voting. For us to fail to utilize those to the best of our ability is just absolute malpractice on behalf of the part of uh, our party and our voters. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And it's, and, and it, uh, it's something that, you know, I, I wrote a column, we discussed it when I was last on the show, right? I, it's 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 something that when we had good old fashioned absentee balloting before the changes in 2019, when we had good old absentee balloting, Republicans used to win absentee balloting. We knew what neighbors, you know, who was the dad that was the traveling salesman mm-hmm. or the mom that was the nurse and had long hours at the hospital. Who were the kids that went away at college? We were really good at that stuff. You know, today we'd call it analytics and targeting. But back then, we just knew who our neighbors were. And as a party, candidates and party people would, would know to go knock on doors. And, you know, Sam, Sam's always out and about, and we need to get him an absentee ballot. When we got into this mail-in balloting with no excuses, the Democrats took it around with it, and, and Republicans didn't. And, and I would say we've been playing catch-up ever since, but we aren't. The problem is they keep getting better, and we keep not trying now. For all of that negative, let me offer positive. Let me offer positive. Mm -hmm. On election day in 2020, before the first voter went to the polls, Joe Biden was ahead by 1.4 million. I mean, that's just that's just a fact. You you, any of your listeners could go look on the Pennsylvania Department of State website and and find that Joe Biden was ahead by 1.4 million votes before the first live vote happened on election day, which means in a state where. Uh, Joe Biden got 80,000 more votes in total. It means that President Trump won Election Day by over 1.3 million. Mm-hmm. It goes back to my point. What if it's a 100-yard dash and they start on the 70? 
even with them starting on the 70, President Trump almost caught them at the finish line. Right. Okay. So here's the silver lining. Here's the silver line. We, we don't need to find a million more votes. We need to find maybe 200,000 more. Instead of losing six to one, if we lose three to one, we win. And, and I've stressed this, Sam, I've stressed it, hopefully, you know, with your audience, I've stressed it on every audience that'll let me say it, live or radio or podcast. Here it is. If I told you there's one thing to do between February and, and November, if I told the listeners there's one thing you can do, that if we do it right, Joe Biden cannot be president and Dave McCormick goes to the Senate, it's a Republican majority Senate, would you do it? Well, I'm telling you that if we can grow our absentee ballot, our mail-in voters, if we can grow that by about 200,000, 250,000 to be safe, we win the White House and we win the Senate. It's that simple. It's that simple. I don't care about the debates. I don't care what MSNBC does. I don't care what the teachers union does. Okay, this is going to be a race decided by one or two points at most. They've been winning by one or two points, and we're not even trying. If we go find the votes, we win. So to me... Of all the things that are going to happen between now and November, this is actually in our control. Everybody listening could vote by mail. Everybody listening could encourage someone else to vote by mail. We do that. We win. It's not much more complicated than that. I mean, yeah, we have to do all the other stuff, and we have to register voters, and we have to post on social media, and we have to talk to people when we're at the grocery store. Right. But, but in terms of mechanics, this is one thing that's in our power. For us not to do it, it's political malpractice. No, and And – you're absolutely right, and again, and this is something that I've been urging, and, and you you struggle to say what else could you do, you know, because again, when you have people that go to vote, the super voters that vote, you know, they vote in every single election. I'm not necessarily trying to convert them, but I'm trying to reach the Republicans that don't go to vote in every election. You know, the ones that are only vote in one out of four, maybe the ones that have been registered and are now inactive, you haven't voted at all in the last four elections, okay? Or someone that only votes in two out of four. The, the bottom line is we're looking to try to reach those low propensity and mid propensity voters so that we can add those voters to the folks that all, that go on a regular basis and that we know that are always going to be there. You know, because it's all, as you pointed out, it's all about turnout, regardless of what the media does, MSNBC, Teachers Union, anybody else. You know, and the key is reaching those people and getting them to request these ballots. And that's... uh. You know, that's a hefty challenge that we have facing us. Now, one of the other problems that we have, Guy, is there is a um, significant portion of the electorate, mainly on the Republican side, that don't feel that our elections are secure. And, uh, you know, they're concerned about it. And despite the best efforts of folks like yourself and myself and many others to try to demonstrate, you know, and provide transparency or insight into the electoral process and, and try to, uh, you know, allay any fears, you have actions that are being taken by some, and I'm referring to uh, the Allegheny County executive, uh, Sarah Inamorato, announced yesterday, well, excuse me, announced on Thursday that she was going to open five additional locations for mail-in and absentee ballot return. Now, we haven't had these satellite locations since the last presidential election. So here we are. We go three years without them. The elections are very well run. The election department in Allegheny County 
is very experienced, you know, and I believe that the way we run them is really the standard. We set the standard in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I mean, except for 2020, you know, all of our mail-in ballots are pre-canvassed and canvassed on election day, and the results are provided early that night. Uh, and that's by throwing a significant number of resources at it. But now the new county executive comes and throws this, uh, I don't know, this uh, you know uh, hand grenade into the room, which is only going to cause many you know, to start to question what's happening and bring up the fears that many have you know, that their elections aren't secure. And, and it's, you know, I, I spoke out about it. I uh, both uh, issued press releases as a chairman of the Republican Committee of Allegheny County and also as a member of the Board of Elections because she did this unilaterally. She did not talk to myself or the other member of the Board of Elections. She just did this on her own. And I believe state guidance, you know, that's issued by the Department of State dictates that it's the, the, the Board of Elections that authorizes and approves these things. So, you know, I'm looking at potential legal action here, you know, moving forward. But these are the types of things, and, and I'm afraid that this is just the start of actions that she might try to take as they get desperate to want to, uh, you know, ensure that Democrats win the election here in 2024. And I just think it's it sends a bad signal, puts a partisan taint on the whole thing. And... Uh, I'm very disappointed, but this is something else we're going to have to try to overcome here in Pennsylvania. And, and I would urge our listeners here in Allegheny County, folks, you see what's happening. You know, the response isn't to just stomp your feet like Rumpelstiltskin and yell and scream. The response is to go out and contact every other conservative voter, Republican voter, uh, conservative-leaning independent, and get those folks to take and request and utilize uh, mail-in ballots so that they can make their voices heard and they can make these actions taken by some of these folks irrelevant. Well, look, I think you're right to speak out because at the end of the day, you know, I, I know you and I, we, we, we work really hard. You, you put your, you put your time, energy, time, treasure, and talent into it. Uh, we want our candidates to win. We think our candidates are the better candidates. We think our platform's the right platform. And we work tirelessly, but we're also Americans and we want to we want to know that the process is fair. And and if we win, we want to win fair and square. And if we lose, we want to lose fair and square. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I come back to sort of the three principles that we should all want, regardless of your party, regardless of ideology. Right. Whether you're whether you're Summer Lee or, or you're Guy Reschenthaler, it should be easy to vote, impossible to cheat. And we should have results we all trust. And you need transparency. You need bipartisanship. You need nonpartisanship in the counting. Uh, you, you need to know that these things are done not to help either side, not to help any candidate, but is voter focused and is American focused. And so when one side tries to game the system to manipulate the rules, to manipulate the rules after the fact or to manipulate the rules unilaterally, it causes us to have a concern with the last part, which is results we can trust. And that's it. I mean, I, look, again, I want to win. I'm going to move heaven and earth. I'm going to write. I'm going to knock on doors. I'm going to go to rallies. I'm going to post on social media. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to help Republicans win this cycle because I think the stakes are that high. <clears throat> but what I want to know as an American is that the winners are the winners and that there was not gamesmanship done. 
And we should do both things, right? We should encourage our neighbors to vote by mail and at the same time make sure that the process is fair and that the counting is transparent, that that there are sets of eyes and there are rules followed. So I think you're right to speak out and right to challenge her. You know, again, like so many things Democrats would like to do, they want to wrap themselves and say, sort of wrap themselves in the flag and say, I'm doing what's right for democracy. So, well, if you're doing what's right for democracy, do it in the daylight and do it collaboratively with the ele- other elected officials. It's the same way whether it's Governor Wolf or Governor Shapiro. Anytime they, they t- want to tell you they're doing the right thing and they do it through executive order, <laughs> they act unilaterally. I always question, are you really doing it? You know, are you following the rules? And, and so I think you're right to speak out. But I don't think the one, you know, I think you're a perfect example, right? On the one hand, you're saying, I want the rules followed, and I want these things to be done transparently and nonpartisan. At the same time, when I put on my Republican, I'm going to urge my Republican friends to vote by mail so that we can close the gap. And that's what good citizenship is, right? You fight for your team, but you fight for your team because you believe in America and you're trying to hold up America. And when you challenge the county executive, you're challenging, you're saying, I think you're doing something that harms the greater good. And so I think you can do both things. And I think you're showing an example of doing the two things you need to do to be a good citizen and a good advocate at the same time. And they're not in conflict. They work together. Well, and and I'm, and I'm trying. And I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head there where, you know, I'm a big believer in the law guy. You know, if there's a law, we need to follow it. If we don't like it, we can repeal it. We can amend it, but we don't have the luxury of being able to ignore it, you know? And uh, when I see officials go out there and take these moves or make these actions, and again, unilaterally against, you know, what I, or I believe at the moment, the rules. And, and let's be clear here. Uh, if she had had, if she had had a board of elections meeting where the public was let it, was able to comment where this was, uh, we were informed and this was voted on, she probably would have got the same thing. Because, you know, I'm the minority member on the Board of Elections. But to your point, at least it would have been done in the sunlight. At least people would have been able to view it as a transparent action. And we would have been able to move forward from there. <clears throat> this type of move stinks to high heaven. And the fact that they would do this, and, and they, there was, here I am, a Board of Elections member. They took and sent out the email to members of the press saying that they were embargoed before they notified the members of the Board of Elections. It was it was a member of the press who reached out to one of my colleagues and asked for comment on it. And she was incensed that this was being taken without consultation, <clears throat> called the administration. They gave her a half uh they gave her a poor excuse, okay? And then yeah. they took and sent out a screenshot to her and then to myself saying, "Oh, hey, uh, I just want to give you a heads up. This is coming today." That, that, that's not how the former chief county executive acted or governed. And I don't think it sets a uh, good example or a, you know good trend going forward. So, no, I mean, again, this is we're talking about what do we have to do here, and it's about trying to win elections. It's about using you know, mail-in ballots. But I just use this as an example of uh, I believe that this is just important of things to come, not just here in Allegheny County, but you'll see it across the state. You know, just as we saw in 2020, where you know Democrats went to the Supreme Court, you know, for actions to create the ability to use drop boxes, satellite voting locations, where the Supreme Court arbitrarily extended the deadline for ballots to be received by three days. I mean, right now we know 
it's being appealed in federal court, you know, on whether ballots that lack a written date per the legislature's uh, writing into law that that be required is going to be upheld. And we've seen it first. It was ruled that you need the date. And then the most recent action was a court uh, judge said it wasn't. This may end up working its way all the way to the Supreme Court. <laughs> but I would anticipate more legal actions taking place here this year. And, uh, you know, again, this doesn't serve uh, the public well. I wish the legislature and the governor would get together on a true election reform bill. We all know that we'll have to compromise, but they should be willing to compromise as well and put something in place that puts into statute the way elections are to be administered here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Yeah, again, it's we don't live in we don't live in a monarchy, we don't live in a kingdom. There you and I believe in the rule of law. This is this is a government of laws, not of men or women getting to do their whim. Um, if again, if if a, if a chief executive, whether it's a mayor or county executive, governor, president, believe what they're doing is right and think something is so obviously important, then take it out in the daylight, talk to the American public, consult with the legislature, the appropriate legislature, whether it's a county council, county commissioners, city council, Congress, whatever it may be, and then go fight for it. This is not a, there's not a provision in the Constitution. There's not a part of America where you get to say, but I really care about this, or I really think this is the right thing to do. And therefore, you just get to do it on your own. It's right. not the way government works, because lots of executives, lots of mayors, lots of governors, lots of county executives believe in things really passionately. But there's not an escape clause that says, you know, the, the legislature shall pass legislation and the governor may sign it or veto it. And then there's like a footnote that says, but if the governor thinks this is really important, you can do it on your own. It's just not the way things operate. It, and the same, it goes for the county executive. There's a reason there's a county council. And these are decisions that, again, if you care about, if you care about the rule of law, if you care about having results people can trust, then you come to county council, you come to the board elections, they have an idea. We've identified three or five locations where we think voters would be better served if we had these. Then you have a debate, and then Sam gets his turn to speak, and others get their turn to speak, and then there's a decision. The same thing with the governor, same thing with the the, 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 the fight, as you alluded to in the court, this idea for folks, as you, you said, you did it to learn, but for folks that should know whether you've done it or not, for mail-in voting, after you cast your ballot, you put it in a security envelope. Then you put that envelope inside a bigger envelope, and then you sign and date that outside envelope. There's a space for it. It's pretty basic. For those of us that live in the real world, that have to sign and date tax returns, that have to sign and date, ta uh, you know, checks that have to do other forms, it's pretty straightforward. Name, signature, date. The idea that the court can say that that's not really necessary flies in the face of plain English language. You, no, and, you're... I aren't being st you and I aren't being sticklers. We're saying there's a law. The law is written in plain English. The law says sign and date. Yep. Hey. Why, why do you get to waive that? Oh, well. Guy, you know what? I wish we could go on forever talking about this, but unfortunately, as usual when we get started you and i we start talking we run out of time listen i want to thank you for being on the show uh and uh, look for you to be a guest on a future one i i appreciate it it's good to catch up and say hello to my friends in southwestern pennsylvania and i do appreciate all that you do uh as a public servant but also as a spokesperson for our party so great to catch up and i appreciate all that you do and keep doing it thanks guy folks 
Have a great day. Talk to you next week on The Elephant in the Room.